listen more often to things than to beings. Listen more often to things than to beings. Tis the ancestor's breath when the fire's voice is heard. Tis the ancestor's breath in the voice of the water. Who have died have never, never left The dead are not under the earth They are in the rustling trees I think they do hold a kind of quite an imaginative spell over us um, because, because of when we, when we came to them at those, those kind of formative years, I suspect Listen more often to things than to beings. Listen more often to things. My name is Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience of the non-human world. Now, Colin, we're often dealing with the power of place or our fascination with what is non-human. These have been cornerstones of our podcast since we began, but to add to that, I know we're both equally fascinated by the human mind, our perceptions, our telling of stories, and perhaps most of all, the telling of stories to ourselves through culture and memory. So I'm delighted to have a guest this month whose work as an author is a powerful illustration of all of those things, I think. Um, Ed Parnell is the author of the acclaimed Ghostlands, which has been described as Parnell's moving exploration of what has haunted our writers and artists and what is haunting him. Uh, it also said it's a unique and elegiac meditation on grief, memory and longing and of the redemptive power of stories and nature. Uh, Ghostland was shortlisted for the Penn Ackerley 2020 Award for Memoir and it has been the recipient of an Escalator Award for the National Centre of Writing and a Winston Churchill Travelling Fellowship. And amidst all this, Ed, I believe you once said, my editor described me at the Ghostland book launch as the least spooky person he knows. Welcome, welcome to Beneath the Stream, Ed. Thanks. Yeah, possibly I wrote the wrong book given that description. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. I was particularly interested to, to delve into this subject of the power of memory on this podcast because um, uh, although very much I say it's a, it's a book about grief, it's really a book about memories. I think you said that yourself. And... Um, and there's something very powerful and healing in reconnecting with memories. Is, was that a motivator for writing Ghostland? It was, yes. Once, once the, the project came, came about and um, I had an interest in it, you know, I, the publishers had an interest in, in me writing it, because um, it, it sort of started off really with a, a dialogue between myself and my editor at William Collins, um, we began by sort of this shared love of trashy sort of folk horror films and old ghost stories, people like M.R. James and Algernon Blackwood, all the characters who I, I, write, I write about at length in the book. Um, but once I knew that Tom was interested in me possibly putting a proposal in on, on, on that subject, um, I went away and thought about, well, how would I 
what 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 could I bring to it that's that's unique and different? And it it became apparent to me fairly quickly that well, the obvious link really was my own kind of haunted family history and trying to access those memories that were looking back sort of roughly 30 years or so which is happens to be the the time scale that mr james gives to in a, in a lovely little quote that i think i use in the book that a haze of distance is desirable 30 years or so he he, he mentions and that that sort of really tied in with my own family story and thinking back to my my childhood really and my when my parents were still around which was which had sort of when I was writing the book it happened about 30 years before so yes it was very much that was a motivation that I, I thought well I've got an opportunity here to actually if, if if I actually want to go down that route of thinking back to these things that I don't consciously think about that often because it's, it's obviously it's 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 tough to think about people who are no longer around um but i kind of felt i had a a bit of a duty to to go there i think it possibly the the right amount of time had had happened and yes i i, I wanted to i think i obviously i think i felt that i did want to to look back at those earlier moments from my life which also happened to tie in with lots of these ghost story writers and old films that i was slightly obsessed with as a kid so the, the the whole ghost angle was uh that was something from very early age I was into ghost stories and the supernatural I, I moved away from it at a probably when I was a bit older and a, a teenager but it's something that I think I came back to in my 20s and older so it, it never really left me but yeah the the kind of power of memory and how you access these kind of half buried half forgotten memories when when you're really the last custodian of them that that's a lot of what the book's about that's really powerful and 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 you said um one of your quote is all of it was real i think and i it's just a wonderful play on what what memory tells us and 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 also that link between memory and and the writers that you talk about where reality is is somewhat distant from their work Yes, and there is always that thing, I think, when you're thinking back to events from a long time ago and that strange way that our minds work in that I, I think it's a really honest book that I've written, but I'm sure there'll be things in there that I have misremembered somewhat or or didn't quite happen in the way my brains sort of fixed them after all that time. You know, so you there's an element that you kind of I suppose we're always self-mythologizing to an extent. So, you know, I'm sure there's some of that going on there. And of course, the added, I think one of the added poignancies really of of the book is that, you know, one of one of the other people who are the, the main people who I would share these memories with, who could have who was always a good sounding board for whether whether things were as I indeed remembered them, although Often he was useless, actually. Um, this is my brother I'm talking about here and would would have no memory because I think I have a very good memory for these distant events, actually. And another friend of mine who I'm still friends with from school kind of extols the, how good I am at remembering things that he has only a, you know, a really vague memory of. So, but yeah, that's a... Checking on these, checking up on these things is... It was an added difficulty because I really was kind of the last person left standing. Actually, whilst I was writing the book, 
um, my aunt was still alive, but sadly died during the writing of it, just towards the end of it. So actually, the the very last person who I could occasionally ring and bother with, do you do you remember this thing that happened, or you know something that happened? Because of course, there's other things you're vaguely trying to think about. I talk about in the book, for instance, that my my parents um, went on the honeymoon to Stonehenge, and I have a couple of photos and a postcard of this, um, but. You know, as to the the rest of the details of where they went after, I think they ended up in Bournemouth. But these are things I have no way now of 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 knowing. And I I did have um, an aunt who I you know the aunt who I spoke to most often, who was say still around for part of this. But she watched her memory wasn't that great at that point, so actually she wasn't as good a source of getting to the bottom of some of these things as I hope she would have been. <laughs> Did you meet with the emotions you expected to meet with and the memories you expected to meet with, or, or did they take you by surprise? I think it, it possibly varies from place to place. I don't think there was a, an overall response that, yes, everywhere I went, these sort of memories would flood back and I'd be overwhelmed in a, you know, a cascade of emotion or something. I think there might have been certain places that were more poignant. And then others, I think, that were possibly less poignant than I thought they might be or you know where I was perhaps I mean an obvious one was I went back to the hospital in which my father died um, actually at the time because my my uncle was in there um, so I, I was going for quite a sad reason anyway but I hadn't been back to that building for 30 odd years and it sort of I think it had loomed loomed quite kind of dark and large in my imagination as well it's sort of become a bit like I don't know if you if you know the the brilliant um noughties comedy horror series Garth Marenghi's Dark Place which is this spoof horror and I think in my head this this hospital the Pilgrim Hospital in Boston in Lincolnshire had sort of almost taken on those kind of qualities not that there had been anything sort of not that it had been like a gateway to hell or anything but just I think it had somehow fixed in my head and maybe that was almost an amusing way to kind of think of it but it was certainly somewhere that I think I I was dreading a little bit going back to and actually when I went there yes it wasn't I it, I wasn't sort of overwhelmed by that experience and didn't become you know gibbering wreck you know transported back to my 17 year old self and went there in much darker times so um but then there were other other places that were possibly more moving that that may have been places that yes I had a connection with and I'd, I'd gone to a lot but in in my childhood and or or a bit later on you know places I've, I've visited with my brother more recently but some of those yeah were were kind of unexpectedly poignant I think or perhaps not unexpectedly but yeah possibly I was surprised at how much a certain a certain place moved me at that given point but you know that might be the might have been the the light at that given time or the you know the the scent in the air or something who knows or the the song that kind of came on the radio I know that I, I mention it in the book that when I was visiting um Whole Beach Marsh which was a, a bird watching haunt that I went to a lot with my brother when we were sort of teenagers and a bit older and actually it was a kind of occasional sort of family Sunday afternoon outing before there and it's always a, an odd place because it's somewhere if you if you hit it when the tide was in it was like 
you you were there at the sea and the sea was right up to the to the bank and it was there was all this kind of bird life all these geese whatever it was waders you know really close in and a cacophony of noise and all this stuff going on but get there at low tide and it was just this sort of endless salt marsh and mud and the sea a distant glimmer on the horizon but when I when I turned up there and I hadn't been there I don't know for 10 years or something I don't think um, my iPhone was connected to my stereo and playing I just had it on random I think as I was turning up and this song came on that was a particular it really evoked an era because it was a it was an album. It's Lou Reed's New York album, which is, a, I think, a 1989 album, which is fantastic. And it was something that my brother owned on cassette. So, you know, that kind of dates it from the time. But we, it was one of, those, you know, that moment, which is seems so alien now, where you'd have like two or three albums on tape in your car and you'd just listen to them. You'd listen to them to death. And this particular song that was a really poignant song on there called Halloween Parade, that's all about the kind of heavy losses in the in the kind of gay community in New York um, due to AIDS in the in the eighties. Um, but that that came on just at this moment, and it's a song kind of about about the departed. And I was driving up, and it was okay. Yeah, this is this this is quite poignant. Yeah, you're trying to get me here. So that was that was. I definitely remember that being a quite a moving moment. Yes. They are in the morning rocks. The dead are not under the earth. Listen more often to things. So I'm going to read a little bit that's about revisiting uh, one of my childhood haunts, which was Holbeach Marsh, um, which was a rather lonely spot in the middle of the wash. So um, the Welland that I refer to, or I'll shortly refer to, is the local river that then ran through the town that I grew up in. I follow the Welland the few miles to where it runs into the bird-rich basin of the Wash. Today there are well-appointed nature reserves nearby at Frampton and Freeston, complete with proper hides and even a visitor centre. However, when I was growing up, the Marsh meant the esoterically named Shep Whites, the lonesome southern stretch of shore that stretches from the mouth of the river to just north of the village of Holbeach St Matthew. Rather mundanely, Shep White was a local shepherd who ended up making his home beside the sea wall. Occasionally, we used to go to the marsh at weekends when I was small, though I could never memorise the labyrinthine set of narrow single-track roads that Dad plotted a course through to get us there, they seemed to change each time we visited. Locating a route remains as difficult, but, fittingly, for the final winding stretch, Lou Reed's Halloween parade shuffles into play on my phone through the speakers of my radio. My brother's cassette tape of the 1989 album New York, on which the song appears, was an ever-present fixture in the car we shared at the start of the 1990s. This track, with, his, with its elegiac roll call of those lost to AIDS, seems particularly poignant today, putting me in mind of earlier visits and faces I too will never see again. Finally, assisted by the sight of a particular Second World War pillbox and finding the familiar crucial left turn, I arrive at the makeshift parking area behind the sea wall. It's tattier than I remember, a fly tipper's paradise with a broken open piano littering the scrub, its redundant loose keys strewn among the long grass. 
I used to love the anticipation before you ran up the grassy bank. Would the tide be in so that you'd feel yourself standing at the seaside, or would you be confronted with a green and brown expanse of mud and salt marsh, the distant water barely visible at the edge of your vision? In the summer, the landscape seemed kinder, its harsh, its harsh edges softened by the pale blooms of cow parsley that grew rampantly along the dikes. My granddad called it keck, and one of his sluice-keeping tasks would be to burn off, burn off it and the other weeds that would clog the drainage ditches later in the season. In his 80s and early 90s, when I drove him around his old stomping ground, he would wistfully point out tinder-dry stands of dike-side grasses he'd like to put a match to. Peering into the distance, you could see the shimmer, a sort of fata morgana, of ghostly half-real structures further round the coast. Like the ugly squat slab of the Pilgrim Hospital, the name honouring the group of Christian separatists who, in 1607, attempted to sail from the port of Boston to find religious freedom in the Netherlands and later the New World, only to be betrayed by their skipper and end up imprisoned in the town's Guildhall. Or the 272-foot stump of Boston's towering church, where in September 1860 an ominous-seeming cormorant alighted, its arrival presaging the simultaneous sinking a continent away in Lake Michigan of the Lady Elgin and the loss of 279 souls, including the town's MP Herbert Ingram, who also happened to be the founder of the Illustrated London News, and his 15-year-old son. The unfortunate potentous bird was shot the next morning, the badly stuffed specimen spending the following 40 years on display in a local pub, before being mislaid and vanishing from view. The dead have a pact with the living. They are in the woman's breast. They are in the wailing child. So did those did that list of writers and filmmakers easily suggest themselves or? or... Well, they did. Yeah, once I, I started thinking about it, because I knew that there were. I knew that there were so many people then who I, I, I really enjoyed who I'd want to write about. You know, I knew that I'd want to write about The Willows and Algernon Blackwood. And perhaps when I had the, you know, original... Well, for that, for instance, I was thinking, well, yes, there's these big willows at the bottom of my garden that sort of dominate when I'm, when I'm looking out now at them. They rise, sort of, these goat willows that rise 60 feet into the sky and make these strange sounds when it's windy and kind of contort at very odd angles and all the bird life that when I'm sitting, not writing, putting on procrastinating, looking out my window that fills the ivy that's in them. So I knew there was, I could write about those willows, but then I was thinking, well, what's the, because that's the story that's set in the Danube. So I obviously, I didn't want, I realised early on, I didn't want to go outside of Britain for it, really. I wanted it to be kind of a haunted British Isles book I suppose but also I wanted it to there's a few little bits where I do I mean after I talk about the the Danube setting of that story but I don't think I ever envisaged that I wanted to go on a two-week canoe trip down the Danube to recreate that story although that you know I'd quite like to do that but um but then I had to think about well actually is is there another landscape that kind of ties in with perhaps the if let's call it the personal side of the story that kind of seems a bit well has has some similarities to that story. And then I kind of thought of those poplar woods on the Norfolk-Suffolk border, 
which as a bird watcher is a place that you visit. I'm talking around sort of Lake and Heath Fen and a few other sites around there. As, as whereas bird watchers, we used to go to look for these wonderful birds called golden orioles, these bright yellow summer visiting songbirds from the continent that sadly no longer are that present anymore. They vanished just um, you know two or three years before I started writing the book, um, or at least they vanished as a, as a breeding species there. But that sort of, I don't know, sort of, what that that sort of watery landscape dominated by one kind of tree just seemed to be yes it was poplars rather than willows but i i like the idea of using that for instance so all all of these different things started to come to me when i used when i thought about it and i yeah i i had a list of people i wanted to talk about i knew i'd quite like to talk about arthur macken's work for instance and obviously that some you know, largely set in in Wales and indeed London, and there was kind of autobiographical London stuff I could write about that would tie in quite well with that, and then sort of um, some early uh, childhood holidays to Wales. But you know, it's not not all of it has a direct link to places that I would. I mean, for instance, you talked about memory earlier, and I know I, I visited for the first time. As a as a as a kid, I was a huge fan of Alan Garner's books, the the Weirdstone um, the Weirdstone books and the Owl Service, which um, I talk about all of those in the in Ghostland. But I I'd never been to Alderley Edge, which in Cheshire, which is the the really um, wonderfully evocative setting in the Weirdstone of Brisingerman. I can never pronounce. I never quite know how to say that book and the Moon of Gomrath, but. Um, yeah, I'd never been there before, and that was an interesting one because I, I, I visited this wonderful um, limestone escarpment. I think it is that you know just sort of rears out of the Cheshire countryside, and it was obviously such a a wonderful piece of imaginative inspiration for Garner, who grew up near there. So he was coming to, I suppose, he was thinking back to visiting that place, you know, in the pre-war days and. Of course, he had all of his family histories as well entwined with it. So he had layers of meaning and memory that the place meant to him. I turned up and although I enjoyed walking around, I found it quite hard to connect it with the picture of that landscape that was in my, you know, that had been burnt into it as a child. So in in a sense, that couldn't really live up to the the imaginative description of it in, in Garner's books, which I thought was really interesting. Um, because you know, I suppose I didn't have any of my own baggage. It's not somewhere we'd been on a, you know, when I was eight on a family holiday, when I'd have had all of those layers of meaning and memory to ascribe to it. But so I was just sort of going, having read those Garner books as a kid and then going back, sort of really looking forward to hoping I would, you know, find all of. And of course, yes, you can see all of the all of the the landscape features that are you know, they're name checked in the books and you can go and stand at the Wizard's Well and all these different places, which was was lovely to do. But there were also lots of it was a little bit gentrified and all these people in their four by fours walking their dogs. And it it was quite a nice day when I went, actually. So it maybe didn't quite have the atmosphere. If it had been a bit bleak and rainy and I'd been the only person there, I think I'd have felt the kind of moodiness and thought that goblins were going to sort of jump out of the cleft in the rocks at any time now but it was that was interesting because it, it didn't quite it didn't give me the, the the feelings I thought it would do interestingly although other sites from the book I went later on to this ruined house in the Derbyshire on the Derbyshire Cheshire border that's in the moon of Gomrath and um, this um, I can't remember what it's called now but this that was 
that was I found a lot more sort of memorable actually than than walking around quite a busy Alderley Edge. But I obviously have to go back there because I did, I did like it, and I'd, I'd like to go back when when there's less people there in in possibly more inclement weather. Now there are places I think Ed, that 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 Colin and I will share in common with you. Some some you mentioned right through the book that all of which we've either been to from a birding point of view or from from other angles. Obviously Colin mentioned his knowledge of the fens. I live in Albra on the Suffolk coast, a place I know very well. We, we're both regular attendees at Hemingford Grey to see Robert Lloyd Parry read, read the work of uh, M.R. James. So, so there's a lot there, but I wonder whether there were places that you were eager to go to and had written down, oh, I can't wait to go here, and others that, that did hold some, I won't say dread is too strong a word, but the, the memories that would be raked up would it meant you were driving there more slowly than you might have been to other places. Um, I don't know. I think once I'd once I'd, I'd embarked upon the project, I was I was quite up for 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 visiting wherever. And at that earlier quote you said from my editor Tom about me being the least spooky person, you know, I'm I'm I guess you know like yourselves, I'm a I'm a birder, and from a young age I was wandering around woods on my own so I'm, I'm in some ways I'm not that spooked by places so I'm, I'm kind of I'm quite good I think at walking around somewhere that someone else might think this is a this is a bit creepy you know I, I was I was a choir boy for some who knows esoteric reason I'm not quite sure why I joined why I joined up the, the church choir as a kid because you know my family wasn't religious or anything I think I was I was kind of sucked in by the promise of, oh, you get to go to a choir club and play football on a Wednesday night and all these different things. But anyway, that was, but that sort of meant that I, I spent a lot of Sunday evenings from, I don't know, between the age of eight and 11, you know, sat in a, in a dark, cold 13th century parish church. And then afterwards we'd play in all, you know, me and my friends would play in the graveyard and run around it and things. So, so certainly from that kind of, from a directly, being spooked by places, I'm, I don't think I'm because I, you know, I, I, I suspect as well if, if, if there are such things as as ghosts and you know different people have different levels of susceptibility to feeling them. I, I, I think my kind of ghost radar is just useless. I don't think I would, you know, there there could be a room full of dead people behind me and I'm I'm not going to be seeing them. I suspect, which I'm quite pleased about if if that's the case. But, um, but in terms of the that other kind of you know the more reconnecting with poignant memories side of things i say i think by the time i started writing it i i wanted to i wanted to kind of go back into those things so i was i was you know perfectly willing to to do that at that point and there is a quote i wanted to it's invidious isn't it quoting back words you've written to yourself but um, um you said it's not the house that is haunted it's me and I want to be, I have to be, because if I give them up, if I stop looking back, everything that ever happened to us will cease to exist. And that seems very powerful. You know, I had this opportunity to to document my family and to kind of breathe a breathe a, a second life into these people who otherwise, you know, as I said, I'm I'm the only person really thinking about them anymore. So that so that sort of became a bit of a almost sacred mission, I think, to to do that and to to make that connection i mean actually when you when you say about were there places you didn't go back to actually now now you mention it so i didn't i toyed certainly the proposal of my book i know i i envisaged that i would somehow 
go back to the the house I grew up in, my childhood home, which was the only house I lived in until I was until I went to university. Um, so we never moved house or anything. So you know, it's a house that I can still I could walk I could sit now and walk around it like I was you know in a doing a kind of virtual tour of it in my brain. You know, picturing picturing it as it was fixed fixed circa nineteen ninety six or whatever. Um, but yeah, I kind of thought that I would that it would might be interesting to to go back there and see if I could, you know, well just rock up and knock on the owner's door who I think is still the person who I sold that we sold the house to um but in the end I decided no I don't want to do that because I I don't really want to see what it's become and and what's been lost and so I, I didn't do it I did go and sort of have a peer over the fence and even that had kind of changed quite a lot and I think that was you know and that must be a familiar thing for to you know to to everyone really when you you go you try and go back home and and you you can't really because places have changed and moved on and there's there's elements of them that still re- remain and some houses i suppose you know keep more of their retain more of those memories if if less has been done to them but i decided in the end that i didn't want to do that and and perhaps that was an element of maybe i thought it would you know, it would upset me seeing it. Um, it may well have been that, but I think it was. I'd perhaps be as upset as as upset that it wasn't. It, I, I wasn't seeing the thing that I kind of wanted to remember. And of course, you know, I was gonna. If I had have gone there, well, you know, the reason I kind of wanted to go back to it, the people that I'd have liked to have seen again, quite obviously weren't going to be there. So I decided to leave that one in the end and just just sort of peered wistfully over the over the fence and kind of muttered to myself about. Christ, they you know they cut that tree down, and why have they done that? And oh, they've got some awful wind, you know, all that kind of thing. So, yeah. And and did you in in the same way? Um, although you're writing a, about a lot of writers that had um, been writing a while ago, you know, so so most of the people you're writing about are, are long gone. Um, there are also some writers like Graham Swift, and and I read Waterland when I was 16 and it, you know, it deeply affected me. I realized I was living in a novel, which, which was wonderful. And, and, but there, there were a few people like, like Graham Swift and um, some others who are still around, maybe film directors and, and producers from some of the programs you mentioned. Um, did you contact some of those people and, and talk to them about their experience or? I, there's a, there's a couple of them that, you know, one of the film directors I, I, asked I, I emailed and had a nice email dialogue with about some questions about one of the you know some technical questions about filming filming on the wash actually um and I did think about I, I was I would have loved to have gone and met Alan Garner for instance who still lives in in Cheshire in in, in his house just outside Jodrell Bank but I decided that actually from from the way the from really the art the way I was putting the book together that I th- I thought that interesting as that would be to me personally I thought that it would end up being a bit intrusive and actually it was a book kind of about my emotional response largely to to these stories these writers these landscapes these memories and then I thought if if actually I'm then talking to a writer in it it's how how is that going to How's it going to fit into the flow of it? And I thought, because as you say, it's not like this would be, it would be really a disparate bunch of the writers who are involved. It wouldn't, yes, if I could have gone and, 
interviewed M.R. James and Algernon Blackwood and E.F. Benson and all these other people. Well, obviously, that's a ridiculous thing and it would have been a different book. But, yeah, all those kind of main characters, they were they were no longer around to, to talk to. So I kind of thought it would be strange, possibly, or just... just I th- I think I'd, maybe it was an element of laziness on my behalf as well, but there was, or, or an element of you know not not meeting your heroes and it's spoiling it. But actually, I think it, it would have been lovely to have met Alan Garner certainly, um, but yeah, I, I didn't think it would really fit with the style of the book, and I'm I'm still kind of I will I'll stick by that, and I'm pleased that I didn't. You know, I liked, you know, I, I turned up at just unexpectedly because I didn't think I'd find it at the house on in. In Borth, which is on the um, on the Welsh coast, um, which was the house where William Hope Hodgson, another of these wonderful Edwardian writers um, of the of the weird and the eerie, where he where we think he he wrote or at least edited the you know the final draft of his wonderful novel, The House on the Borderland, and that was somewhere that I just turned up and. Um, the owner really kindly invited me in and knew knew something of Hope Hodgson and was a lovely chap who you know showed me around the place. So that was, I, I think things like that seemed fortuitous and I think really added something to the experience. But I think if I'd have had a chapter where you know that Alan Garner chapter, whereas rather than visiting Alderley Edge or some of the places in Cheshire and Derbyshire and you know that and and Wales that had featured and inspired his books I think rather than doing that if it had been me talking to him about it it would have been a a very different book I think and so yeah that that's why I didn't do it and it is a very uh, that's that's what I love about it it's a very personal reaction so I'm I'm intrigued to to sort of poke you Ed, and say those writers and uh let's say the loosely the genre of folk horror particularly with the movies that you talked about how would you um how do you define or explain what links those people in a category for a listener now who is unfamiliar with that? Well, I mean, folk horror is something that I only touch upon a little bit. A lot, again, that's the thing that it's it's quite a... It, well, it's a term that's become quite trendy the last few years. And, and there's, you know, and I'm, I'm equally a fan of it and, a, you know, a member of these Facebook groups. But there's, there's sometimes, I think, a tendency that people say everything now is folk horror at the minute. And, you know, it, it's, it's quite a new... A reasonably new invention as a term well it's 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 just a way of grouping these things and i suppose folk horror refers to to films that largely films that have this they they deal with the land and the rural and old ways are at their heart and so there's there's a triumvirate of films that gets kind of labeled as the unholy trilogy trinity of them which is the blood on satan's claw the Wicker Man and Witchfinder General, and actually, of those, only one of them really deals with the supernatural. The others are kind of the the unpleasant things that people do to each other. So it's only the Blood on Satan's Claw that has a, a well, a, a, a really obvious supernatural um, thing coming into it. So there's that there's that folk horror thing. But actually, so this wasn't really a book about that. I suspect the folk horror I was attracted to it because lots of the places I was visiting were that that chimed in with lots of kind of rural bird watching places and landscapes. So that might have been and that was an obvious attraction to me. Um as to the other writers, I think I think there is a thing that kind of links them and that's and it's something that 
<laughs> this may or may not be the case because obviously this is me as a writer sort of discerning this quality within the, in, within them and within their work but I think probably most of those writers I talk about there's a kind of wistfulness a hauntedness that and some of them had that quality within their own sort of lives so you know a lot of them that there's a sort of there's an element of things that things you know losses that they had in their lives or tragedies or things that never quite came to be for them and I think that was so that was that kind of haunted quality that I sort of liked to do I, I thought I was discerning in them then so that was kind of that at least is how I think I would kind of rationalize how I kind of came upon the the figures that I I fastened upon in the end and there'll be some that you know that's that's less applicable to but that that was largely I think how I how I kind of there, there was a kind of I guess there was that sort of wistful haunted quality and also the kind of tone of their work I think that sort of chimed with the with the kind of mood I was aiming for really. stand to beings listen more often to things than to beings it is the ancestors so having been on this big journey um and and, and writing about it um so affectingly um in ghostland does your does your journey continue are there are there still places uh, still writers and artists lives who you're who you want to connect with uh, in, in their landscape um, are you still discovering these things yes i think i think there there is and there are um obviously the the current pandemic's kind of put a bit of <laughs> A block on me developing my next book because I, I was kind of set to obviously try and write a, another a non-fiction book and I suppose there's an element of well this formula this sort of me <laughs> it's obviously not for everybody but me wandering around connecting kind of works of literature and film and landscape that obviously lots of people quite seem to quite like it and I quite enjoyed doing it so you know it would it would make sense to try and, and write a similar book, but probably on a on a different theme. I don't think I'd want to write a, a Ghostland 2. Well, if if somebody commissioned me to do it, then I could, I suppose I could probably quite happily go to New England or Europe and, and wander around those landscapes and write about some of those writers. But I suspect that that won't happen. And it's probably better to move on, you know, just to, to shift it somehow. And I've got a few ideas, but they're they they've become a bit more half formed over the last year because the the places that I was thinking of visiting sort of about a year ago just just before we went into the the first lockdown um that obviously all got put on hold so I'm you know it, it's it feels quite difficult now as a writer to to sort of think about new non-fiction projects when when you've sort of been stuck in your house for the past year and you, and you can't visit anywhere well you can visit your imagination. You can you can obviously do, which was something I was doing in Ghostland. I was obviously visiting memories and of places that I'd been to a long while ago. So there's, you know, that's one possibility that I've I've still I've still got all of those places I've been to that could, you know, if there are for the for the you know for the considerable period of time, if there's going to be difficulties in traveling abroad, say, or even traveling closer to home, then that might be something I can access. You know, a bit like. Patrick Lee Fermor in, in A Time of Gifts, his wonderful first book of travel writing. And when he sort of, he, he wrote that, I don't know how many years it was, sort of 
30, 40 years after he'd, he'd undergone this walk when he started walking to Constantinople, you know, so that was an imaginative exercise. And presu- I, I, can't, I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head whether he'd got, you know, vast diaries full of notes for that. But I, I mean, I certainly haven't got, I've got birdwatching diaries of places, but I've, I've never been a big journal keeper. So I have to rely on what I hope is this good memory. But yeah, that's... Um, so yes, writing something else at the minute it seems a bit difficult at the moment, but you know I'm sure that will that's kind of the least of our worries, and I'm sure that will you know hopefully solve itself at some point and that might become more of a possibility again but if if that takes longer than than we'd hope it does, then I guess we'll have to explore different ways of trying to to write about other places and memories and things so I guess as the as the reader that's a double edged sword because we're denied at the moment your opportunity to to write in that uh, in that vein further, which would be wonderful. But what we do have is the vicarious travel via you to all those places as a reader. So in a way, I also wanted to to ask you that that phrase psychogeography comes up a lot. And for those who've not heard that before, I wonder how that does that phrase resonate with you? What does that mean to you as a word? Well, it's, it's kind of, again, it's a bit like folk horror. It's a term that's... Um become very trendy and popular in certain circles and you know there's it's a, it's a good phrase there's nothing wrong with it but I, I it wasn't something I was particularly au fait with I think when I embarked upon this I sort of knew about it a bit and I probably chucked it into my proposal thinking yeah this is trendy this will this might kind of tick some tick some boxes and you know someone someone in the marketing department might quite like this but it's again it's it's a book that it's a book. It's a term that I, I would find kind of quite difficult to define and would probably leave that leave that up to other people who've written whole books on it. But so I, I wasn't kind of I, I didn't set out to actively explore that as an intellectual concept, I suppose. I, I wanted to if, if that's what I was kind of inadvertently doing, then um, great. But I, I, it wasn't you know, my book wasn't as kind of, right, I'm going to go and, and do this, explore the psychogeography of the country or of these places. It That may have been what I was doing, but unwittingly to, an, to a large degree, I suspect. I think there are also a lot of writers, of course, using psychogeography to write about the urban experience as well as as well as the rural experience. And and I wondered whether just, just circling back to that folk horror thing a minute about why, why that, that made such a rich vein for filmmakers and writers and scriptwriters and all those sorts of things. Um, is it because for still a large part of the population, the world kind of out there, the world of fields and rivers and meres and marshes, is still mysterious and still um, untouched and unexperienced? Yeah, and I suspect that that's, that's a lot of the horror in in the folk horror films. You know, it's because it's... Well, or, or something like, you know, I think a good case in point might be something like the Blair Witch Project, that there's a there's a terror in there for people watching it who don't kind of visit the wilderness very often. And, you know, you can they can then picture this. Well, that must be terrifying being in the in the woods on your own, trying to survive in the woods when there's these external supernatural forces pitted against you. That's very much outside most people's comfort zone and I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm no Bear grills. I'm useless at that kind of thing but I'm kind of I'm I'm as I said earlier I'm, I'm reasonably au fait with wandering around a wood on my own so that that doesn't generally sort of scare me too much um, but I think so I suspect that yes the alienness of 
I mean, I often think that with the fens, that actually, because it's such an unnatural man-made landscape, and so if you're not familiar with it, I think that's why so many people find it really creepy, because lots of people have said that to me, oh, they're, you know, the fens, they're really spooky, aren't they? And to me, they're not, because it's it's where I grew up. So, I mean, there's there's a whole gamut of other emotions that they bring up. You know, it's 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 a melancholic area to me but that's that's probably me because of all of my kind of you know personal associations with it but and it's you know there's there's whole other things that it it might evoke and it's kind of a bit depressed it depresses me a bit when I drive through the fens now because I'm kind of you know because it's a a bit of a natural wasteland and because you you see no birds when you're driving through it you know even the the flocks of lapwings and things that as a kid would have been you know, in on those wintry fields would have been there in their hundreds. You you can drive through it now when I'm sort of on on route to the Midlands and and see none of that because it's such a such a kind of sprayed to death, overworked, arable landscape, I, I suppose. So, um, but yeah, I don't find it spooky. I don't think that. Um, but I think I suspect that's my own familiarity with it. I I might find kind of. I don't know, moorland or mountainous regions a bit spookier because, you know, partly because if I'm on the edge of a cliff, I've got this horrible vertigo and kind of urge to jump or fear that I'm going to fall that kind of that comes at me. So and that's that's probably because I grew up in the fens and, you know, and not used to heights. And it's my inherent fenland and thus is now coming to the fore, probably. But yeah, so there's I think you're right that though, that, that yes, lots of people aren't familiar with with kind of wild natural landscapes so that they they might seem very alien and and unsettling to them and actually the the landscapes that they're perhaps more likely to have come across that's a kind of halfway kind of house between the two are those kind of edge edge lands that you know the industrial industrial estates or the kind of pockets of scrub along a railway or things that you know lots of kids you might, you know, when you grow up in a town, you might explore and uh, sort of that boundary between the the outside and the edge of your town. So they're, they're obviously, yes, I think they're now quite a kind of, they're a good sort of spooky, there are lots of people have written about those and they're a good setting, I think, for lots of, lots of kind of good horror is set in, in that kind of landscape as well, because it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a kind of boundary land. And I think those kind of liminal zones are always kind of quite quite good don't they? they they have a they have different resonances and the book really it, it packs that emotional punch that we've we've talked about and I, I think many many readers seem to have commented on that but also it is that that sense of the liminal which i think the book's an amazing gazetteer to the writers you might want to seek out and the places too that you might want to seek out because there's that suggestion or a feeling that there is or should be something more going on. And I'm curious to know why as a child, because I think it probably applies to Colin and myself too, but certainly you've written about it, you were drawn to that horror, that folk horror, that those writers. Why why do you think that is? Well, all I can say is that I was always interested in ghosts and I, I talk about it in the book and it was it was kind of there from the beginning and I think it might have been dinosaurs before ghosts, if I remember kind of what my my mum or dad might have kind of said to me. But you know, there on early, I think it was a holiday to Wales when I would have been about four. I was there in, you know, one of the castles, asking the tour guide, you know, piping up, is is there a ghost here, or you know, can you tell me about that? And I was then just very much into, you know, the next two or three years, um, when I was a little bit older, into those Usborne ghost books and all those 
demons and vampires and things that were, were covered by those. And then that got me into watching, getting my aunt and uncle who had a VHS recorder couple of years before we did so when I went there in the summer holidays I'd get I'd get my auntie to video old old universal horror films and things that were on late at night on the on the tv so you know I, I was this sort of seven-year-old boy watching Frankenstein or Bela Lugosi and Dracula and things and then but actually wanting to sort of graduate to the harder thrills of an American werewolf in London or, or whatever it was um but so yeah I was I was always drawn to that and then from that, I think I got into fantasy books and Tolkien and which are, and then kind of, I suppose, people like Garner are probably more along that kind of folkloric um, side of things rather than the ghostly, although there's, there's, I think, quite an interchange with it. But I was into that and then a little bit older when I sort of probably you know, first went into my teens, it, it then moved on to science fiction. But it was always this kind of fantasy rather than realism, I think, that I was attracted to. And I, I don't know why. I mean, I think all kids probably are. You know, that's why do kids like Harry Potter so much? Or, you know, it's there must be there's something about that that perhaps we're first drawn to to these kind of more fantastic works um, before we then get into. Because I definitely I definitely know that, you know, when I then was a bit older, 14 or 15, I kind of start, thought, I think I'm perhaps started to think, well, perhaps I've got to stop reading this science fiction stuff now and, and start reading some proper novels. And then I kind of moved away and, and got quite into, you know, American fiction and, and reading probably stuff we were doing for A-level and things. And that's why I ended up going to university to, to study. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know the, the psychology of why we are. I mean, all, all I know that it, I, I was drawn to it and... Then having moved away from it a little bit, I suppose, in that kind of teenage to kind of early 20s moment, I think something like the X-Files probably drew me back in and I kind of realised I was then probably old enough to think, well, actually, I quite like all of this horror stuff. Let's not be ashamed of it and let's, you know, embrace it again. And that's probably the point when I got more actively into finding these wonderful old haunted Edwardian writers and, and Victorian writers and lots of the people I then talked about in the book. Which you make um, such a powerful link between those writers, I think, and then the circumstances that engulfed your family. And uh, there's the wonderful M.R. Jem's tale, uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, and, and that phrase, who is this who is coming? And you use that motif really effectively with the approach of death and and. So I, I wondered, how has it been speaking about these matters? You refer in the book to not really sharing with friends, school colleagues or whatever, what was happening with your family. But now it's all laid bare and the world is reading about it. How does that feel? It's strange, isn't it? And I'm not sure I necessarily consciously think about that too often. There was, I think you get these weird moments where certainly when I was writing the book, where I suddenly thought, well, absolutely, as you say, that, yes, this is stuff I've never really... I've never shared this stuff with my, you know, my partner before. And here I am writing about it for the world to see, or at least, you know, it's not all of those experiences, obviously, that you're presenting a certain edited portion of, of events. So, you know, it's not, it's not everything that happened to us there by, by a long shot. But yeah, that is, it is odd. And then, but that was a, a rather lovely kind of unexpected thing that happened having written it that, I, I I was always worried writing it that oh god is this is this book too morbid you know I'm just going to depress everyone reading it but actually I've had quite a lot of 
emails and messages from people who are who'd been through a kind of similar similar losses I suppose or were currently going through them who'd actually read it and rather than being kind of just sent into a deep depression by it they 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 also taken some comfort in it I think and that was uh, that wasn't something I'd necessarily expected to happen I, I was I suppose writing it I was thinking that there was a a kind of universe universality of experience that I was writing about family and loss and this was something that you know this isn't something that's confined to me that everyone eventually is going to come to if most people of a certain age already probably have done so I was aware of that but I was you know I I was a little bit wary as to oh is it just going to is it just going to depress people so I'm I'm pleased that I'm sure I'm sure it has depressed some people but for lots of readers they've they've taken a kind of comfort in the because even though it's a sad book, I think it's also it's a it's kind of a celebration. And really, I think I became aware that really it was a kind of love letter that I was writing to my family, really, in albeit it's maybe a slightly obtuse one. But that's really what I was trying to do. I was trying to I was trying to kind of breathe life back into their memory again and to kind of articulate those things that I have no way of articulating to them anymore. So. Yes, they're they're not going to read it, but well, I guess there's there's who knows there's there may be some shades somewhere appearing over my shoulder reading it. I'm 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 kind of dubious of that, but if if there is, so be it. But you know, it felt like the one thing that I had the power to do really to say to give to give a kind of another existence to them, and also to 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 a certain extent address some of my own kind of losses and and ghosts with them so yeah that's that's what it became really well i think what it also does um ed and did for me i think is uh you visited an awful lot of places who were that were familiar to me in books but uh, many of which i i hadn't visited um and uh and like you i was enraptured by those those little anthologies of contemporary ghost stories when we were kids so i think they were pan anthologies uh of of uh of ghost stories um, um, but you do, and, I, and I, I left the Fens many years ago, and I now live at the bottom of Watership Down, the actual Watership Down. And uh, and when I walk to the top um, of Watership Down, which I do um, frequently to walk along the ridge, um, the amount of people who I meet who are scattering their loved ones' ashes um, at the top of Watership Down, um, um, and I meet, I also meet people who have said that they've scattered their loved ones' ashes um, up there. These places that we read about and that that stay with us from childhood become very important to us and very weighty and uh, in in a good way. So I think, uh, as well as as well as those moments of poignancy which you bring, I think you you've probably also brought a lot of familiarity for people who were also in love with the same works of literature that you were in love with, um, and brought some poignancy to to their. Um, experience of those places and maybe even like me some of those places that haven't yet been experiences but now after reading Ghostland um, we might want to visit. Yeah well that's that's lovely if I have I mean I think actually it sort of harks back to an earlier question as well as to why we're we're drawn to as as children why we're drawn to that kind of those sort of works that deal with the spooky or, or TV programs that do um, those fantastic works, and actually, um, say I, I'm, I'm not sure 
quite the psychology of why at those ages we're, we're drawn to that. I guess that there'll be some element of trying to make sense of the world, and by you know that's a, that those stories are a good way of possibly doing that. And they're dealing with big themes as well, but not in a you know it, perhaps in a, a, a sort of slightly tangential way rather than a very kind of obviously depressing way of dealing with death or something those stories are kind of hinting at some of these things possibly but I think I think because we read lot or we read lots of those kind of stories at a young age I, th- I think that that is possibly why they have such a resonance with us because they're they're fixed at such a moment in our lives you know when we're when these kind of young six, seven, eight-year-old brains, you know, teenagers, these, these kind of, when everything is so kind of new and fresh and awash with possibilities, that's that's when we kind of probably had our first encounters with all these wonderful work, works of the the weird and the eerie and, and the strange and fantastic. And I think they do hold a kind of quite an imaginative spell over us um, because because of when we when we came to them at those those kind of formative years i suspect and it's been a delight having you on the podcast i really really enjoyed it um heartily recommend ghostland to to our listeners and uh yeah we, we really enjoyed your company so many poignant things that you talked about thank you for joining us those who have died have never never left the dead have a pact with the living. They are in the woman's breast. They are in the wailing child. They are with us in our homes. They are with us in the crowd. The dead have a pact with the living. Thank you for listening to Beneath the Stream. Um, We'd really love you to go on to iTunes or Google Podcasts or Podbean or wherever it is you listen to our podcast and give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and also tell us what it is you want us to uh, explore in future. Thanks so much.